invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you're not that familiar with the New Testament, if you just flip through the Gospels and move past Acts, Romans, and then two somewhat large letters, First and Second Corinthians, uh, then you'll be at Galatians. The letter of Paul to the Galatians, as we start a new series uh, this morning on this uh, magnificent letter, uh, a letter that is, uh, it's fiery, it's strong. Um, Paul is, is battling for the truth of the gospel in Galatians and also calling in Christians to live in light of the gospel. It's a magnificent book. Uh, it's a bit of a daunting book, but I think it's a critical, it's a critical left, uh, letter for the church today. This morning we're going to be reading the first nine verses and we'll focus on the first five. Let's give our attention then to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, you are the God who gives us this word. Jesus Christ speaks this word. The Holy Spirit opens ears and hearts to receive this word. And we ask, O oh Lord, then, that we would hear the voice of our Savior by the power of the Spirit today. Teach us what we need to learn. Convict us, Lord, where we need to repent. I pray, Lord, that you would use your gospel today uh, as a mighty weapon to accomplish your cause. Um, Lord, convert the unbeliever. Uh, strengthen the faith of those who believe. Uh, purify our hearts. Show us Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians is a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a letter that has uh, functioned in a, in a dramatic, mighty way in the history of the church. Uh, this is the letter that uh, God has used from time to time when the church needs reviving and reforming. Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians has been at the forefront uh, because it is a letter about the gospel. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul says in Romans chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, this was uh, Martin Luther's favorite book in the Bible. He called it his Katie von Bora, the name of his wife. It was uh, a book he dearly loved. Uh, he wrote a magnificent commentary on it. Uh, John Bunyan, who you know as the author of Pilgrim's Progress, um, found uh, an old copy of Luther's commentary on Galatians. And said, uh, next to the Bible, uh, that commentary was his favorite book in all the world. Uh, it, is a, it is a just towering letter, a towering message um, for the church 
in all ages. And again, it is a, it's a letter that we desperately need to hear today. I was reading just this past week of a new survey that's come out. I think it was released early in August. The Arizona Christian University, working with George Barna, did a survey of American worldviews. And the report begins like this. Unlike past generations of Americans who, stead- who readily recognize the reality of sin and the need for salvation through Jesus Christ, U.S. Do- adults today adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective, with a near majority believing that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. Uh, even worse, the survey found that the majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christians, so 52% of, of uh, those who describe themselves as Christian, believe that uh, or accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. So they believe in grace, but they attach something to grace, either um, your, your church affiliation or having devotions or not doing this or doing that, that, that what we do is a critical part, a necessary part of being accepted by God, a majority of Christians, which means that a majority of Christians don't believe the gospel. Um, and, if, and if you don't think that's true... Well, then Paul has something to share with you uh, in the letter to the Galatians. Now, um, we, can, we can sort of uh, comfort ourselves, maybe think, well, surely that's not true of good Reformed Christians. Well, um, I think uh, we're just being naive and, uh, if, if we think that. I find in my years of ministry that it, uh, it's very common to talk to people who are born and raised in Reformed churches who cannot give a concise definition of the gospel. It's very common. Uh, and also, I think we would recognize that, that Reformed Christians have a reputation for lacking joy. Uh, why is that? Well, we'll say because, well, we have Dutch joy, which is, uh, it's like stealth joy. You just don't see it, right? Well, that's a little lie we tell ourselves. Um, the gospel is, is, is mighty enough to overwhelm even Dutch people. Um, why is it that Dutch people or, or Reformed people seem to lack joy? Well, a part of the reason might be that, that um, we have not received the gospel as deeply and truly as we should have, the pure gospel. Because Paul will say in the book of Galatians, to the Galatians, what happened to your joy? The gospel got undermined and their joy was undermined as well. There's, there, there are um, other signs that you could look to if you're looking for a deficiency See in understanding and grasping the gospel. You can ask yourself these sort of um, examining questions. If, do you find it hard? Um, do you find it easy to hold a grudge and hard to forgive? It's just, it's just difficult for you to get past the pain. Even when the other person is repentant, it's, it, you, you have a hard time forgiving. Well, if that's true of you, then, then uh, Paul would suggest that there's something uh, deficient in your understanding of the gospel. Ephesians Five, right? Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. If, if you pride yourself on your morality, or maybe not pride yourself, that would be too strong. You just take comfort in your morality, that you're doing the best you can. Or you comfort yourself on your religious orthodoxy. You know the right doctrines, and you can argue them. And you, and you have a sense that uh, those somehow give you a standing before God. And, and an easy way to, to examine this would be uh, when you feel threatened in some way and wondering if God uh, might be punishing you, what do you look to? How well you did this week? 
um, the theology you hold? Or do you look to Jesus Christ alone? Uh, If you're at peace in your sin, and you profess all the right things, but you have sin in your life that you've, you've finally just become comfortable with, you're at peace with your sin. You don't really have the, a, a, a passionate hunger for holiness. The truth is that, that it's, it's difficult to find a sincere love for Jesus in your life. You're very reformed, or you're very churchy, you're very religious, but, but, but you're comfortable with your sin. You don't have a hunger and thirsting after righteousness. You don't, you don't love Jesus and want more than anything to serve Jesus and to please Jesus. If, if that's true of you, then no matter what you may profess with your mouth, your life is giving you away. You don't understand the gospel. So we need to hear a Paul's letter to the Galatians. And there's a, there's a weight. This is not a chipper book. None of them, of course, are. There's a, there's a seriousness. Paul throws punches in the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. His pen is boiling as he writes these words. He's angry. He's astonished. He's deeply, deeply concerned. Why? Because some false teachers have come into the church, people who call themselves Christians, and they are teaching a distorted gospel which Paul will call a different gospel. It's different than the one that Paul had proclaimed to them. Now, in our postmodern sort of create-your-own-truth world, that might not seem like a big deal. I mean, why doesn't Paul just live and let live, right? Can't we just agree to disagree? Well, no, Paul cannot agree to disagree. Not in, not, not in this, right? Paul understands that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one and only... <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> it's the one and only means for a sinner to actually be rescued from the wrath of God. It's, it, this is the only possible means. There is no other name and no other way. For sinners to be reconciled to God. So when the gospel is distorted and when God's people are uh, taught to accept a distorted or different gospel, people die. People are destroyed eternally. They go to hell. That's what Paul understands. And that's why he's so angry. That's why he's upset. So he'll say, even if an angel from heaven comes and proclaims a different gospel than the one we proclaim to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. That's what he's saying. This this matters so much. A correct understanding and receiving of the true gospel is the difference between an eternity of bliss in heaven and an eternity of horror in hell. You can't have higher stakes than this. And so it's essential that we understand and receive the true gospel. The true gospel. So um, let's go to work on verses 1 through 5 here. Paul begins with an issue of authority. And and, um, he's going to talk about that a great deal more in chapters uh, later in chapter 1 and 2 and in chapter 2. He begins with that because that's something that is being undermined. 
Paul uh, is writing to a group of churches that uh, he had formed or he had planted in his first missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. These are towns like Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Uh, These are places where Paul had uh, gone and argued from the scriptures. He'd gone to the synagogues generally, for there were Jewish people living in these towns, and he'd go to the synagogue and he would argue from the scriptures that... um, The way and the only way of salvation is by a free gift from God through Jesus Christ. That the law of Moses, though given by God, could not possibly rescue you from your sin. And so in Acts 13, verse 38, here's an example of Paul's message. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he points out to these Jewish, primarily Jewish audience, that Jesus had accomplished for them, for sinners, what the law could never do. The law can show you your sin, the law can convict you of your sin, but the law cannot set you free from sin. Not from the power of it, not from the pollution of it, not from the penalty of it. All it can do is throw a spotlight on it. But what the law could not do, Jesus can do and freely does. That's the point about everyone who believes. It's not those who work, but those who believe. In other words, those who receive this free gift. The message that Paul preached, the gospel he preached, was a free gospel. A message about freely given grace and freely given forgiveness and freely given righteousness, freely given reconciliation with God, freely given inheritance in a new heaven and a new earth. That was the message he preached. That's what he proclaimed. That's what the message they had believed. That's how these churches were built up. But now some Jewish Christians uh, from Jerusalem had come to these churches and they were um, teaching a slightly different gospel that not only was it necessary to believe in Jesus, but it was also necessary to keep the law of Moses. That if Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they first had to become Jews. Well, in their effort to teach this gospel, they have to deal with the Apostle Paul. And so what they tried to do was uh, challenge the veracity of Paul's apostleship, uh, his authority as, a, as an apostle. After all, we can all agree that Paul wasn't one of the 12, he wasn't one of the 12 that walked with Jesus, right? He wasn't with Peter and James and John. Um, Paul didn't even know Jesus then. Um, so, so, you know, Paul's a good guy, he means well, but he doesn't have the authority that Peter does. Um, he, he, he doesn't have the same apostolic weight of these, other, of these other apostles, and so they would undermine his authority. And their point is, if they can undermine his authority, they can discredit his message. But Paul won't let him get away with that, right? He begins by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from men. He argues that uh, his apostleship, 
is authentic. He was commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. He is an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's where his authority comes from. And so the point is, if you have a problem with Paul, you have a problem with Jesus. You have a problem with God the Father. Uh, it has been a very popular trick uh, for liberal uh, teachers in the church to try to draw a line between the Christianity of Jesus and the Christianity of Paul. And so they'll say the Christianity of Jesus, much more appealing, much more compelling. Jesus is just about loving each other, being kind, um, showing mercy to people, getting along, right? I mean, the, 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 the Christianity of Jesus is so gentle and, and, um, and, and, and it's about such good things. Paul, on the other hand, Paul is, he's all about these doctrines and rules and kicking heretics out of the church. I mean, Paul is drawing lines and, and making distinctions. And so people will, will, will say, you know, we follow uh, Jesus. Uh, the, the Paul, not, not so much. We got issues with Paul. Jesus we like. Well, Paul won't let you get away with that false division. Uh, neither will Jesus, by the way. Uh, Jesus, for instance, in Luke chapter 10, when he sends out the 72, he says to his appointed messengers, verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And who, the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So if you reject Jesus' appointed messengers, you reject Jesus and God the Father who sent him. You cannot separate the Christianity of Jesus from the Christianity of Paul. They're exactly the same thing. Paul's words are Christ's words, and he speaks them with the authority of Christ himself. It's one and the same gospel. But the question that uh, we get to this morning more specifically is then what is that true gospel? What's the pure gospel? Verses 1 through 5. Grace to you begins in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the pure gospel is a message, it's a declaration about how sinners can have grace and peace. It's a declaration of grace and peace for sinners from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a declaration that uh, sinners can be forgiven by grace. Grace and grace alone, the kindness and the favor of God for sinners. And sinners can live in grace Every day live in grace. Every day receiving kindness and favor and goodness and love as a free gift. And peace. The peace of the gospel is a peace that, that um, has been established by God himself between you, the sinner, and the God whom you've offended. You see, God made you, created you, you know this, and, and um, you bear his image, and you bear the responsibility as his image bearer to obey and worship him and him alone. And yet, by virtue of our sinful nature, we worship anything and everything but God. And we happily serve ourselves, and we sin against God, and we must stand before that God. We're at war in, in our sin with God. There's not peace between a sinner and God apart from Christ. And yet in Jesus Christ, there's this beautiful announcement that God has freely forgiven you in Jesus Christ as you confess your sin and trust in Him. 
The gospel is the announcement that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God takes the initiative, God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now, how is this possible? Let's just cut to the chase. I mean, God is an infinitely holy God. That means that he does not and will not overlook or ignore a single sin. Not one sin will go unrewarded, unpunished in God's universe. That's a, that's a pretty astonishing thought. Every single offense against God in the history of the world will be punished and must be punished because God is infinitely holy. He's just. So then, how can I, a, man, a sinful man, who's broken God's holy law a thousand, thousand times over, how can I possibly receive God's grace and peace? Paul gives the answer when he speaks of Christ who gave himself for our sins. The, the core essential gospel is right here. Uh, the gospel, there's so much confusion today. We're going to get into that in, in the coming weeks. Today, I just, I just want to just, just give the pure gospel what it is. But there's so much confusion about what the gospel is. It's about a, a sort of a generic idea of God's love or the idea that God believes in you. God, I just read again a quote this past week of, of a man saying right, um, that God sent Jesus to convince you how much he believes in you, uh, how much he has confidence in you. He trusts you. He just hopes that you'll repay him the compliment. That is just, it is just Demonic. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God, knowing the truth about us in our sin, sent his son who gave himself for our sins. The gospel is not a teaching about how to, how to improve ourselves. It's not about us at all. It's not about how we should live or what we should do. It's a message about what God has done in Jesus for us in the death and resurrection of Christ. And, we, and, we, and every word matters. So he, Jesus, the very Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, that Jesus, he gave himself for our sins. Notice um, that possessive personal pronoun, our sin. Uh, the Bible insists that the great need of mankind, the great crisis of humanity, is our sin. So th there's confusion here. The world will, will assure you that the great problem is lack of education or war or poverty or racism or any other effect of the fall. And there are countless effects of the fall. And they are all real and they're all heartbreaking and they all matter. But they're all symptoms they're just fruits. It's not the root of the problem. If you ask the question, what's wrong with the world? The Bible will consistently say the, the problem with the world is our sin. That we are born with a twisted, wicked, sinful nature that, that instinctively loves what is evil and instinctively rebels against God. You don't have to teach a toddler to lie. 
They know how to lie. And so Jesus, again, just to be clear, Jesus didn't die for sinners, right, generically. The Bible says that Jesus died for our sin, that he gave himself for our sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And it's a difference that matters. If we just say Jesus died for sinners, you, we can, that word sinners doesn't really have, um, it, it doesn't have weight. It doesn't, we don't really, it, it, it means people are maybe are doing, doing the best they can, but not, not succeeding. But Jesus died for my sin. He died for my lies. He died for my lust. He died for my greed. He died for my coveting. He died, he died for my complaining. He died for my unbelief. He died for all the ways that I've loved the works of the devil and committed myself to the works of the flesh. The way I've hungered after the world, the way the Egyptians, the Israelites hungered uh, for right, the flesh pots of Egypt. That's what he died for. Your sin. That's what nailed him to the cross. For those sins, Jesus gave himself. This Jesus, the, the man born of a virgin, the man who lived a perfect, sinless life of obedience and love, a man full of grace and truth, that man, that God-man, offered up his body as an atoning sacrifice for my sin. God had mercy on, our, on us as he, as he gave Jesus for our sin. And, and, that, and that word gave himself, that, that was a word that moved Paul. He uses it uh, several times in his, in, in his apostolic letters. It, it just points to the willingness of Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't dragged to the cross. He, he wasn't, even, even as, he, as he sweat drops of blood, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let it pass from me. And, and the Father says, it's not possible. And Jesus says, not my will. Your will be done Glorify your name. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus, the, the one who ordains all of human history, ordains all the events that brought him to the cross. He gave himself. And that willing sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, for sin, for my sin, for Paul's sin, defined Paul's life. Galatians 2.20, The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The thought that he would, the Son of God, willingly set aside the glory of heaven, willingly be born a man in all the weakness, and then willing take our perversion on his sinless shoulders, and willingly bear our transgressions to the cross, willingly suffer the wrath of God that we cannot even imagine, willingly giving his life to pay for our guilt for no other reason than that he loved us. That thought destroyed Paul. It just, it just devastated him. He couldn't, he couldn't live like he used to live. The love of Christ compels him, controls him, constrained him. Because Paul com concluded that, that Jesus died for him. And that, that therefore Paul should no longer live for himself, but for him who died for him and was raised again. That's the gospel. 
The message of a loving Savior came from heaven precisely to give his life for your sin. That was Jesus' own understanding of the reason for his life on earth. The Son of Man, he says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the gospel. And friends, in that gospel, you see, that's the only chance, it's the only hope for your salvation and for mine. Uh, that's the gospel, by the way, also that gives you fellowship with every other believing Christian in the whole world. Every brother, every, every person that believes that gospel is your brother and sister in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And it has a powerful effect. Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. John Stott uh, points out that the, the word translated deliver can also be translated to rescue. In fact, that same word is used that way in the book of Acts uh, three different times uh, to refer to the rescue of the Israelites from Egypt in chapter 734, the rescue of Peter from prison, chapter 1211, the rescue of Paul from an infuriated mob in 23 verse 27. And so Stott goes on to say that Christianity is a rescue religion. Well, a rescue from what? Paul says it's a rescue from this present evil age. Uh, the Bible, you see, divides all of human history into two ages. Uh, the, this present age and the age to come. An age is defined uh, as a period of time defined by foundational realities. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, if you think about the age of the Great Depression in our country, it is a time... Uh, defined by the realities of great poverty and economic hardship. Uh, if you think of the age of World War II, you can talk of that as an age where uh, it's a time that is defined by the realities of this great war that affects everyone. Um, sugar and rubber and salt are, are, are rationed. Uh, husbands and sons are sent off to war, many of them never to come home again. Everyone's life is impacted by the reality of the war. That's the age of World War II. Well, this age, Paul says, is, a, is an age defined by evil. It's a present evil age. So the realities of sin and the realities of demonic powers and all the resulting devastation they bring, these are the things that define this present age. It's an age where the devil holds humanity in bondage to sin and bondage to death. It's an age of all the fruits of, uh, of sin. So it's an age of, of all the wickedness we see, abortion and abuse kids and sexual perversion and injustice and corruption in high places and anarchy in the streets and, and uh, just misery and despair and sin and death. That defines, those realities define this age. It is, Paul will say in Romans 1, an age under the wrath of God. It is an age that will come under the judgment of God. That's this present evil age. And we are all by nature born into that age and our lives are defined by those realities. But there's another age, an age to come, which is an age defined by the realities of all of God's saving work in Christ and all the resulting glories that flow from that work. This is an age of holiness and righteousness and redemption. 
This is an an age where all the effects of the fall are removed and all the powers of evil are destroyed. And so it's an age of no more, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more night. That's the age to come. Now, the, the incredible message of the gospel is that the, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as he gave himself for sin, atoning for sin, the age to come has broken into this present age. And so the age to come is it's already and future. So that as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Jesus has, present tense, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christian conversion, you see, is exactly this. It is coming to Jesus Christ and being united to Christ so that you are transferred out of the age of death and into the age of eternal light and life. So those who come to Jesus Christ acknowledging their sin, receiving the free gift of grace and righteousness given to in, by Jesus Christ, you are already at that moment delivered from this present evil age. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has passed from death to life. Past tense. Accomplished act has passed from death to life. So the age to come is broken into this present evil age, and by faith in Jesus, we cross over from the age of death into the age of eternal life. Now, um, you'll say, but that, that is not what my life feels like. Well, that's because we still live in this world, but we don't belong to this age, not this present evil age. We don't belong to it. If the gospel is true, You belong to the age to come. So yes, we still live in this world and we still experience the effects of the fall. We still experience the temptations of the devil, but we do not belong to the age of the devil. We are no longer subject to the judgment of this age. The realities that actually define our life are the realities of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, even as we suffer the effects of the fall. That makes sense? So even as you suffer sickness and illness and sin, God is sovereignly ordaining, working, so that all of those things must serve your eternal good. All of it, even the effects of the fall. Why? Because you belong to the age to come. You belong to Christ Jesus. You belong, uh, the realities of your life are defined by what God has accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. So the life that you live right now, if you are a Christian, belongs to the age to come. We're already citizens of the new world. We're just waiting to take full possession of it. But the realities that define the new heaven and the new earth, those very same realities define your life today. That's the gospel. John Stott says, the purpose of Christ's death was not only to bring us forgiveness, but that having been forgiven, we should live a new life, the life of the age to come. And Paul will talk about that in Galatians chapter 5 and 6, where he talks about right the fruit of the Spirit and how to then stand in the, in the, uh, and, and, and fight in this world as citizens of the age to come.
So friends, that is, that's the gospel. This is God's good news for sinful men and women. This is what Christ has accomplished. Now the only question then that remains is, uh, have you received this gospel? Not asking, have, do you, have you heard it before? Not asking, do you give intellectual assent to it? But have you received it? Have you taken this gospel for your sin and your soul? Have you acknowledged that there's nothing that you can do that can save you or make you right with God? As, uh, as someone said that the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that necessitates it. That's all we bring to our salvation. Do you know that? Have you acknowledged that only Jesus can save you and do you believe on the basis of God's word that Jesus loved you and Jesus gave himself for you and that by faith in him you now belong to him and he is your living Lord and you will live for him? Have you received the gospel? If you haven't, you are still lost in your sin. You're not a religious person. You're not a spiritual person. You're a lost person. You're a lost person. And the judgment of God still hangs over you. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. But if you have it, the wonder is that this is the, the age of the gospel, where the gospel is being proclaimed, and the invitation is going out to sinners today. And today, you can, this very day, you can receive the gospel. And if you have not done so, I beg you to do so. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a day of grace. God does not promise you tomorrow. If you have received the gospel, then God calls you to rest in it and rejoice in it, to delight in it. God calls us to allow all the, the reality, you see, of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ to be the defining reality of your life. Not your circumstance, not your age, not your marital status, not your children, not your job, not your finances, not the crazy stuff you see happening on the news. It's all real, of course. That's the life we're called to live. But those aren't the defining realities of your life. The defining realities of your life, if you're a Christian, if you believe the gospel, the defining reality is grace and peace to you. Lavished grace that will sustain you, that, will, that will, is sufficient to cleanse you of all sin. Peace to you that God is your loving Heavenly Father. That, he's, that, that, that there's nothing between you and your Father, that He loves you and He'll never let you go. Let the realities of grace and peace be the defining realities. No matter what your day holds, you belong to the age to come. And all the lavish grace and the boundless peace of God are yours today. They belong to you. And Paul will pray, may the God of all hope then fill you with joy and peace in believing. The evidence of your faith in this gospel will be God filling you with joy. I can't believe that God was willing to be gracious to me. Why me? 
And there are millions who will never hear. And I can't believe that God is at peace with me, the rebel, me, the sinner. And yet he is. And I belong to the age to come. I pray you believe the same. Amen. Oh, Father, I thank you for this incredible gospel that is sufficient to save the greatest sinner and to save them to the uttermost. I thank you, Lord, that you loved rebels and idolaters and blasphemers. You loved boastful people, perverse people, hateful, murderous people. thankless, godless, self-centered people. And Jesus Christ willingly came to die for our sin. And Lord, I pray that this true and pure gospel would be the defining reality of our life. Lord, there are some who are hearing today who are not in Christ. A form of godliness, but not knowing the power of a regenerate heart and a true faith in this beautiful Savior. And I pray, oh God, that you'd be gracious today. Lord, that today they would face their sin. I pray particularly for our young people, Lord, who maybe have not yet professed faith in Christ or, uh, or are just not interested in Christ, that you'd be gracious to them, that the gospel would batter their unbelief, Maybe their cynicism and draw them to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have professed the gospel but live so easily as though it were not true and act as though we belong to this world and we belong to this evil age and as though, uh, Lord, grace and peace have not been poured out on us in Christ. For those of us maybe who are trying hard to atone for our sin, Refusing to accept that full atonement has been made and only could be made through the blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe, Lord, some of us holding on to guilt of long past sins or the bondage of present sins simply because it's hard for us to imagine that you could love us at our wicked worst. Lord, it is critical for us to know and believe the gospel. For it is the power of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace then to believe it truly, deeply, profoundly, joyfully, in a way that transforms our life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the word together this morning, 455. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's stand and sing verses 1, 3, and 5.
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.